0: This week I've had a, actually a pretty good time preparing this message. The Lord really spoke to me. Um, last week, Jesse read that story. He's done it in the past, but the story about the boy who wanted a gun for Christmas and how he had learned that it's more blessed to give than to receive. This is a great example of the love of Christ and how it can profoundly change someone for the rest of their lives. If you remember, that story ended with him thinking, every time I chop wood, I remember that day. And that truly blessed me. Isn't that what Jesus came for? You know, it was no tragic accident he died on the cross. In John 3.16 it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. John said it this way in... First John 4, 7 to 11. He said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Anyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifest in us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son into to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Francis Schaeffer, the evangelical theologian who founded Le Brie Fellowship International, wrote many books dealing with the culture of the sixties and seventies. Many of the books he wrote dealt with the ideas of relative truth. We see that so much today. This idea, your truth and my truth. One of the books he wrote was called The Mark of the Christian. And that's, it's a very short book. It's about 70 pages. You can read it in a little over an hour, hour and a half maybe. Maybe depending on how slow you read. (laughs) But even though this book is short, it is very profound. And a lot of what this message comes from, it comes from that book. I'm doing some quotes from it and some other things, but a lot of the ideas come from this because... I think he says something that is very important for us as Christians today who want to reach the world for Christ. Because that's what it's all about. That's what the mark of the Christian is all about. Reaching others for Christ. He also says something very important in that this mark cannot be ignored even by today's culture of relative truth. In my opinion, this mark is the best apologetic for our Christian faith. We have a lot of people that go around. We had you know, the books written by Josh McDowell, and we have Ravi Zacharias preaching and, and dealing with apologetics, but Even though these apologetics deal with facts and ideas and truths, which are important, I'm not saying they're not, but the final apologetic is our Christian faith and what it does within us. He starts the book like this, Francis Schaeffer does, and I'm quoting here, Through the centuries men have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They've worn marks in the lapels of their coats, hung chains about their necks, and even had special haircuts. Of course, there is nothing wrong with any of this if one feels it is his calling. But there is a much better sign, a mark that has not been thought up just as a matter of expediency for use on some special occasion some specific era. It is a universal mark. That is to last through all ages of the church till Jesus comes back. What is this mark? At the close of his ministry Jesus looks forward to his death on the cross. The open tomb at and the Ascension, knowing that he is about to leave. Jesus prepares his disciples for what is to come. It is here that he makes clear what will be the distinguishing mark of the Christian. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and I And as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If ye have love one to another, John thirteen thirty three to thirty five and I'm ending the quote right here. Here we see that the love that marks us is a commanded love. Notice Jesus did not say a new suggestion, no he said a new commandment. In other words, this is not an option. Also notice, Jesus' command was not for them to show more brotherly love. The word in Greek for brotherly love is phileo. This actually is an emotional love, a kind of love, and it would be impossible to command someone to feel a certain way about their fellow Christians. The word Jesus uses here is agape, Jesus didn't say, I command you. Jesus didn't just say, I command you to love agape one another and just stop right there. No, he finishes the thought by saying, as I have loved agape you, you are to love one another. So we see the love that marks us is a commanded love. Next we see the love that marks us is a visible love. He then finishes by saying, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. Here is where we see that this love is the thing that truly marks us as Christians. The statement, all men will know, implies two very important points. The all men means just that, everyone, saved and unsaved. The second phrase, will know, implies a love that can be seen. I'm sorry, no matter how many kindly emotions I f- may feel for my fellow Christian, and no matter how hard you look at my heart, you're just plain not going to see it. My love must be in a way that others can see. I'm not talking about how the Pharisees did things so others can see how good they were. Most of the time, this visible love we're talking about is just plain showing up. Sometimes a word of encouragement, sometimes a prayer, sometimes helping someone move, or get to the doctor, or watch their children. Visible love isn't always expressed with a hug and a handshake. Sometimes it's discipline, restoration, and forgiveness. We see this in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul rebukes the Christians for, fault, for allowing sin to fester and he instructs them to discipline the person committing the sin. Then in 2 Corinthians, he encourages them to restore and forgive him because he genuinely repented. Genuinely showing forgiveness is one of the hardest battles we need to fight within ourselves which is why it is also one of the most compelling, visible demonstrations of our love. Francis Schaeffer relates something that happened after World War II ended that shows just how hard this battle can be. I'll only be reading the first one he listed. And I'm quoting... Let me give two beautiful examples of such observable love. One happened among the Brethren groups in Germany immediately after the last war. He's talking about World War II there. In order to control the church, Hitler commanded the union of all religious groups in Germany, drawing them together by law. The Brethren divided over this issue, half accepted Hitler's dictum and half refused. The ones who submitted, of course, had a much easier time, but gradually in this organizational oneness with the liberal groups, their own doctrinal sharpness and spiritual life withered. On the other hand, the group that stayed out remained spiritually virile, but there was hardly a family in which someone did not die in the German concentration camps. Now, can you imagine the emotional tension? The war is over. And these Christian brothers face each other again. They had the same doctrine. And they had worked together for more than a generation. Now, what is going to happen? One man remembers His father died in a concentration camp and knows that these people over here remain safe. But people on the other side have deep personal feelings as well. Then gradually these brothers came to know that this situation just would not do. a time was appointed when the elders of the two groups could meet together in a certain quiet place. I asked the man who told me this, what did you do? And he said, well, I tell you what. We did. We came together, and we set aside several days in which each man would search his own heart. Here was a real difference. The emotions were deeply, deeply stirred. My father has gone to the concentration camp. My mother was dragged away. These things are not just little pebbles on the beach. They reach into the deep wellsprings of human emotions. But these people understood the command of Christ at this place. And for several days, every man did nothing except search his own heart concerning his own failures and the commandments of Christ. Then they met together. I asked the man, what happened then? And he said, we just were one. In my mind, this is exactly what Jesus speaks about. The Father has sent his Son, end quote. Here we see something tremendous in the history of, of our lives and in the history of the world where we see God working and showing love in a very, very big way. But forgiveness is not always these big, profound issues. Most of the time, as a matter of fact, most every time, it's little things that happen every day. But if we leave them to pile up, they begin to become big problems that need to be fixed. Just this week, I had to apologize to Connor Snapping at him over something that was not really that important. Isn't that right, Connor? Yeah. You know, it's important for us to teach our children about forgiveness. Sometimes it means saying to our children, I forgive you. Other times it means saying to our children, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? So the love that marks us is a commanded love, and it's a visible love. Next we see the love that marks us is an exclusive love. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about loving our neighbor. Matthew 5, 43 to 45 says this, You've heard that it was said, you will love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Many people think that in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is saying this, that he's talking about something new, something that's never been heard of before, that he's saying something radically different. Pray for those who persecute you? I mean, until Jesus came along, nobody heard anything like that before. Wrong. Exodus, chapter 23, verses 4 and 5 say this. Remember, this is the law of Moses being expounded and expanded. The Ten Commandments, if you will, being written as the rubber meets the road. And so... This is what is said in Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, notice it's your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you will surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you, now that's where the rubber meets the road. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you will refrain from leaving it to him. You will surely release it with him. It's saying very clearly, even that person that hates you, that absolutely despises everything about you, you see he's in trouble today's terms, his car is in a ditch. You don't just drive by. You do what you can to help him out. That's what it says in Exodus. So what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount is not new. He's just reminding them of the genuine meaning of what it's saying there. So even back in Moses' day, love your enemies was God's command. So what is the Lord's take on how we should love all mankind? Matthew 22, 34 to 40 say this. When... The Pharisees heard Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Again, these Pharisees were trying to trick Jesus. They were trying to pick one of the ten. But Jesus answers this way. And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You will love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And of course they follow up with, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus answers with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Notice the hero of that is who the Jews despise the most. That was a good guy in the story. But the point is that Jesus was getting at is loving your neighbor. And notice that the love was not an emotional love. It was a practical love. The good Samaritan bound up the wounds of the person who was hurt, brought him to a place, and paid for his keep and didn't ask for anything in return. Even made a promise that if it costs more than what I've given you, I will pay it all. Because all are created in the image of God, we are commanded to love all as we love ourselves. So, anyone see anything wrong about the point I just brought out that the love that marks us is an exclusive love? You know, it almost sounds that it would be. If I'm to love everyone as I love myself, how is my love for fellow Christians exclusive? To answer this, we need to look back at Jesus' command to love one another in John 13. Remember, he commanded us to love one another as he loves us. How did Jesus love us? 1 John 4.10 says this, And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Paul said it this way in Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man. Someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus in his great mercy saw our great need, and with the love that is larger than the universe, stepped into humanity and died to rescue us from our own sin. Jesus put us first. Our needs were more important than his needs. Jesus commands us to love one another with the same kind of love. God, in his infinite wisdom, knew we may not grasp the full implications by just saying, love each other as I loved you. So he spells it out much more explicitly in the greatest passage describing Christ's incarnation. Philippians 2, 4-8 say this, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Oops, that's exactly what he's getting at here. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Think about that. That is a love that is greater than anything anyone can ever imagine. And you know what? That's the love he commands us to. It's an impossible love. But you know what? What's impossible with man is possible with God. And if God commands us to do something, he gives us the power. So we see that the love of God is a commanded love and a visible love and an exclusive love. We are to love one another as Christ loved us. We are to love the world as ourselves. There's a big difference there. Finally, we see the love that marks us is the final apologetic for our faith. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, he prays this for us. I do not ask on behalf of those alone, but for all those who believe in me through their word. So he's in this prayer extending past his own personal disciples at the time, and he's saying, anyone who believes as a result of their faith, who does that speak about? Me, you, everyone in this room. Everyone that believes in Christ. That they may be one Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now that's a unity. That is true unity. You see, God doesn't call us to establish unity. In Ephesians, he says that we are to walk in unity that he has already established. We are to keep that unity, as he says. And then he goes on he says that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Notice this. This unity that we're supposed to have, that is supposed to be visible for all the world to see, they are the world around us is to see this and believe that God sent Christ. It's not facts. It's not arguments. It's not all these other things. It's the love and unity that he established in our hearts. That's what convinces people there's something different. I remember when I first got saved, went to a a Baptist church in um, Machias, Maine, and... um, first time I heard the preacher preach I don't even remember the words he said I just knew there was something different there was something speaking directly to my heart that there's something different about this person and these people and it was the Holy Spirit working on me but it was I was able to see something different and it made me curious. And then it made me aware of my sin. Then it made me desirous for forgiveness. And eventually, I came to Christ. But I saw something. It was visible. There was something that drew me to Christ as a result of seeing genuine Christianity displayed. So, in John 13, when Jesus said, by this all men will know you are my disciples, he was not just saying that the love that marks us is visible. He was saying that if the unbeliever does not see this love, he will not believe you are a genuine disciple of Christ. In this prayer, Jesus asks that we walk in unity he established on the cross. Francis Schaeffer said it this way in the book. And it's important for us to to see this idea he gets at here. And he says this, and I'm quoting. Notice, however, that verse 21 says that they all may be one. The emphasis is, interestingly enough, exactly the same as in John 13, not on a part of not on a part of true Christians, but on all Christians. Not those of a certain party in the church should be one, but that all born-again Christians should be one. Now comes the sobering part. Jesus goes on in this 21st in this 21st verse to say something that always causes me to cringe. If as Christians we do not cringe, it seems to me we are not very sensitive or very honest because Jesus here gives us the final apologetic. What is that? That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in thee. That they may also be one in us the world may believe that thou hast sent me. This is the final apologetic. In John 13, the point was, if an individual Christian does not show love towards other true Christians, the world has a right to judge that he is not a Christian. Here, Jesus is stating something else, which is much more cutting, much more profound we cannot expect the world to believe that the father sent the son jesus claims are true and that christianity is true unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true christians that's immense when you think about it that our unity is what truly shows the truth of the message of Christ. Our unity and love one to another is what truly demonstrates the love of Christ. All of these things are what make others see something different. John goes even further than Francis Schaeffer. In his first epistle, he writes this. 1 John 2, 7-11. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light, yet hates his brother, is in darkness until now. That's harsh. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In a way, this passage is very similar to what James said. Faith without works is dead. Here John is saying, if I say I am a Christian, and I don't have love, I'm walking in darkness. I cannot judge others on this, we all must examine our own hearts. As the new year approaches, I would encourage us all to ask ourselves two questions. Am I truly walking in the light? And two, can others see the love of Christ in me? I want to close by reading a poem that Francis Schaeffer ended in his book. It's It's a nice poem. The name of the poem is Lament by Evangeline Peterson. And it goes this way. Weep, weep for those who do the work of the Lord with a high look and a proud heart. Their voice is lifted up in the streets and their cry is heard. The bruised reed they break. By their great strength and the smoking flax they trample. Weep not for the quenched, for their God will hear their cry, and the Lord will come to save them. But weep, weep for the quenchers. For when the day of the Lord is come, and the vales sing, and the hills clap their hands, and the light shines, and their eyes shall be opened on a waste place, smoldering, the smoke of the flax bitter in their nostrils, their feet pierced by broken reed stems, wood, hay, and stubble, and no grass springing and all the birds flown. Weep, weep for those who have made a desert in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that we can come together and worship you and learn from you. We pray that you will help us to make your love preeminent in our lives, Lord, that we show love not just to all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. We pray that you'll help us to grow in our faith towards you, to walk in unity, and to make our unity something that will draw others to you, that they will see something different in us and want what we have, and that we will be given them the opportunity to introduce them to the one who makes us this way. In Jesus' name, amen. That's it.